0: The following episode can be viewed on the YouTube channel, Bernie or Bust Television. Good morning, USA, and welcome to another episode of the Bernie or Bust Show. Hey, Boomer, do you trust Google? Thank God for young people who pay attention. Here's an article by Didi Rankovic. YouTube pledges to boosting authoritative sources during 2020 election. Does that make you nervous? Google seems to have assumed a role in the US electoral process and it is one that is designed to support the upcoming 2020 vote. Google anticipates that as the November elections near, more and more people will be turning to its giant video platform YouTube to learn about the candidates and watch the election season unfold. With this in mind, YouTube VP of Government Affairs and Public Policy Leslie Miller said in a blog post that this social media platform now wants to be a more reliable source for news and information. One of the efforts that YouTube will focus on might prove to be particularly controversial. Raise up authoritative election news and also promote quality journalism. Dear viewers and listeners, I don't know if you consider this show to be quality journalism, but I don't think YouTube does, based on their algorithms. Two questions emerge immediately. How does YouTube raise news, and perhaps more importantly, how does YouTube decide what's an authoritative source? Leslie Miller's blog post shed some light on the first, but none on the latter issue. Surprised? What is an authoritative source? How is it distinguished from an unauthoritative one? What qualifies for quality journalism and how publishers may apply to be recognized as such? None of these quandaries are addressed here. Instead, the Post wants the reader to assume and accept that the chosen sources are indeed authoritative. That sounds authoritarian to me. With this out of the way, YouTube explains that the raising process... The algorithmic raising process, as expected, has to do with directing search queries and recommendations towards a preferred set of news and news sources. So if you've been following the latest election cycle, you've probably been appalled at the willingness of baby boomers to leap in whatever direction the corporate news media tell them to leap in. We thought the boomers were okay when they were voting for Bernie in the first few primary elections, and then in a 72-hour period, Boom, the boomers went boom. Where did they go? They went right straight to Joe Biden. Why did they do this? Because they were told by authoritative news sources that Joe Biden was a better bet than Bernie Sanders to defeat Donald Trump. They were lied to by corporate media. They were lied to by authoritative sources. Now, what are the odds that this advice coming from me to baby boomers is going to be algorithmically promoted by YouTube? What are the odds that YouTube will allow my content to reach baby boomers' ears at all? The world could change direction if people like me were allowed to speak openly with a big voice. Now, I understand how markets work. I am definitely a side eddy of a side eddy of a side eddy, and I haven't earned my big voice place. But isn't part of the American dream that someone with a good, accurate take, unbiased take on things be allowed to speak in a way that other people might hear? I'm not trying to say that I should be promoted beyond what I deserve, but based on YouTube's algorithms, I'm being squashed. That's authoritarianism, and that's the opposite of the American dream, at least the way most people think of the American dream. So how does Graham Alwood sort it all out? I've been following Graham, and I think he's been telling the truth about a lot of things.
1: But then I also, I read like the LA Times, I read USA Today, and I go through on the internet to find certain stories. Part of what I'm doing is I'm getting more educated into the tactics of the corporate state and what they try to do. So even if I read something like in the LA Times or the Washington Post or something like that, I'm always like asking, what's the angle? What's their, what are they trying to push here? Because in fairness, like I've heard, I've, I've read some interviews, um, some excerpts from people that like worked at the New York Times and they're like, man, I felt like I was selling out to the corporate state, but they said, I did do some, you know, 15 to 20% of the stuff that comes out of of the New York Times or a, a, an outlet like that is actually, there's decent journalism. So I try to see, first of all, what angle, what story are they trying to push? What, what agenda? Is this a pro corporate thing? Is this a pro war machine? Is this a trying to keep me scared and misinformed? Or are they actually trying to get at something? And sometimes they get it. They get it. I didn't know this. Like they're getting at a fact and they're giving me information and statistics that I didn't know. So I try to find, I try to read through the lines. Um, I'm a little more trusting of the intercept and truth dig because they seem to be reporting on stuff that nobody else is and i'm not saying they're perfect or infallible but i've seen a lot of fairly accurate stuff and again when the when the corporate media isn't covering it or they're only covering one side of it they're not bringing up the other stuff that's when i that's kind of how my fact checking process is i kind of see like what's the corporate media doing how is cnn reporting this how is msnbc reporting this that's the loudest you know bullhorn of the of the corporate state are those outlets because they get millions of people and then their clips get repurposed online and social media. One thing I'm willing to do is to say maybe I got this wrong. Maybe I screwed up because I'm not coming into this with, an, with the ego of I, I'm right. I'm right, and listen to me, I'm always right, and anyone who disagrees is wrong. I don't wanna come from that angle. I wanna come up with what is the truth here, and here's my opinion on the truth. So I'm trying to get
0: out and around the same oligarchic news sources the Graham is, and if we don't do that, then we see the disastrous results when baby boomers, who vote in much greater numbers than young people, tell us who we get to have for a primary candidate in the Democratic Party. Other than just waiting for them to die off, we could try to educate them and let them know that the way Grant is doing things is better than the way they are doing things with regard to obtaining their information. The boomers have been drinking this Kool-Aid for a long time. They've been watching Dan Rather and Walter Cronkite. They've believed for a long time that the news they watch on television is trustworthy. They didn't pay attention when Noam Chomsky was talking about manufactured consent. That was not mainstream news, so they never heard it. Ask your favorite boomer if they've ever heard of Noam Chomsky and what they know about manufactured consent. If they know about it, then it's because they're off the beaten path. One of the services I like to provide with the Bernie or Bust show is to point people towards news sources that I find trustworthy. I try to do this legwork so that you don't have to. I'm combing the interwebs for good sources of information and then hopefully promoting those sources so that you can, especially if you're a boomer, so that you can start to re-triangulate your data. Medium.com is a platform I appreciate and I use to promote my own articles. I think Medium.com is a good example of the democratization of the internet. Another one is the podcast host Anchor, anchor Anchor.fm, if you're interested in starting your own podcast. It does put more of a burden on people to pay attention for themselves instead of just knee-jerking and trusting whoever they've been taught to trust. But we need to be doing that, especially in the times we live in now. And make no mistake, the times we live in now are pretty tough. Here's a great article called Perfect Storm and Apocalypse by Stan Goff. Stan Goff is retired military, and he has a really interesting and thoughtful take on life. It's easier being a Christian right now than a socialist. At least when focusing on the final reckoning by a vulnerable god, the story ends well. The capitalist epoch? Not so much. As I write this, the United States finds itself utterly unprepared for a pandemic, to say nothing of peripheral societies with little to no medical infrastructure. The pandemic began during a burgeoning financial bubble that has itself augured catastrophe since its reflation began immediately after the 2007-2008 meltdown. Debt bubbles are neoliberalism's means of kicking the catastrophe can down the road. Unlike tin cans, the risk of said bubbles increases with each passing day. Debt bubbles also increase social inequality by subsidizing stupidity among the rich to ensure continued and increasing return on investment while ignoring the fundamentals. Let's be clear, the economy was already overdue for a crash based on the inability of the capitalist class to renew accumulation through material production. Material production itself is based on biospheric destruction, and not only has the capitalist class used up a good deal of the world, it has destroyed topsoil, polluted land, and water, acidified the oceans, and induced what threatens to become runaway climate change. Remember climate change? We were already entrained within capitalism's final stage, exterminism where we accelerate the annihilation of biospheric order, where we burn continents, where we rip open every fissure in search of renewed accumulation. After five centuries of capital itself spreading like a pandemic, it has captured seven and a half billion dependent souls within its structures. To quote the ironic church graffiti in one scene of the film 28 Days Later, a contagion narrative, The end is extremely fucking nigh. Nassim Taleb coined the term black swan to signify sudden unpredictable events that upset socioeconomic stability. Many call COVID-19 such a black swan. But in 2005, Mike Davis wrote The Monster at Our Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu, and he wasn't alone in sounding the alarm that global urbanization combined with capitalist agriculture is working with bomb materials. Given that these kinds of concerns have always been set aside in the interest of accumulation, perhaps it was unpredictable to those who can't see past the next business cycle. The black swan concept is closely associated with an axiom from chaos theory, sensitivity to initial conditions. In shorthand, seemingly insignificant changes you see today can grow into big changes later, and not predictably because every other change will interact within that change, creating chaotic developments disruptions of stability. Inside a pangolin, one exotic wild animal trafficked for profit in a crowded marketplace, a single virus mutates. Seems like a pretty insignificant event, like one dead whale washing up on a beach, or one canary falling dead off its perch. Insignificance is a myth. So is compartmentalization. Reality doesn't divide into epidemiology on the one hand, and economics on the other, and ecology on yet another. Capitalism doesn't want to deny the myth of compartmentalization because that's been its rhetorical strategy all along. Liberal philosophy was predicated on the refusal of interconnection, on atomization, on reduction and compartmentalization. Our predicament today is a demonstration of liberalism's abject failure. When you're being managed for profit, the ruling class doesn't want you to make connections. They want you to work and buy and stay quiet. Here's a side note. Stan is talking about liberalism, and he is correctly calling it liberalism, because liberalism is market-driven. A lot of us call it neoliberalism, but Stan is still accurate here in using the word liberalism. So in the rest of the article, when you hear liberalism, then just think market-driven. Right now, one of our daughters, one of Stan's daughters, is raising a child alone in a city with no family. The schools have been closed, so in order to continue working, she has to rely on a daycare center, which is costing her money, and which itself could soon close, and which is itself a potential disease transmission center. She is imbricated, as are we all, in this so-called system. Right now, she is trying to figure out how to pay bills, eat, and sleep indoors because her every need is supplied through an exchange of money. That in itself is cause for profound worry, but what no one dares mention is that a catastrophic cascade such as we are witnessing right now could, I don't say will, but could cause money itself to become worthless. What happens then? I'm nearly 70, and I can only face this prospect for my wife and I as elders with dread. We have no way to eat without money. We're even getting too old to grow our own food, as if we had the land for it. Medicines? You can easily cite your own experiences and those of friends and family. The veils of Simulacra are falling, and what is revealed is something barren, horrifying, and seemingly hopeless. Socialists like to talk about the redistribution of money, blissfully unaware of the ways money itself, combined with a general dependency on it, is what built this house of cards as well as what will light a match to it. See Mammon's ecology for a detailed explanation. Merely using money for exchange in the overwhelming majority of cases contributes directly to biospheric destruction, and the generalized dependency on money in a world system means there are no firewalls, no mountains, forests, or oceans that can protect us from contagion, biological, or economic. One terrible misstep, one unforeseen outcome, can lead to catastrophe that spares none, Socialists aren't immune to this either because, yes, it is capitalism, but it is also mass society, something socialists themselves dream about, managed utopia. They are as captured by the delusion of control as the most reptile-minded capitalist. Money dependency is the connective tissue of great-scale modern societies where one catastrophic error or one unpredictable event covers us all like a flood. I have to say, Stan, I've thought of this myself. I've seen this problem. It's kind of the Orwellian animal farm problem when once the pigs rise up, they become as bad as the men they're replacing. I often wonder whether managed utopia is where we really need to be going. I don't know how to get around this money dependency thing if we don't have land of our own to work. I think that's why I'm a collectivist leftist. I understand and respect the rugged individualists, but I don't see how we're ever going to escape the powerful thumbs that are poised over our heads unless we stick together. Sticking together, I'd say, is what makes me a leftist. I see the need to stick together, and money dependency is probably the biggest reason why we need to stick together. There will always be assholes with their thumbs poised over our heads trying to subjugate us again, whether they're socialists, communists, or capitalists. Anyway, back to the story. It's more than a little disconcerting that we are witnessing the crash of the Bernie Sanders campaign at the same time, but it is also emblematic. Speaking for myself, as one who vigorously pushed this candidacy, the Sanders campaign was always a desperate last-ditch attempt to find a tiny social democratic window through which we might begin triage on the gravest wounds of late-stage capitalism. I grieve over this loss, as many do, because we came closer than we thought possible, but the electoral movement around Sanders was not yet strong enough to beat them at their own game. We couldn't know unless we tried, but it's become clear now that this movement has to pivot. It was always an anti-austerity movement, albeit rooted in the rotten soil of America. Whether people realize it or not, the only thing left in our playbook now is the general strike. And our insufficiency in the face of this pandemic is showing us how utterly unprepared we are even for that. So I guess I'm not the only one talking about a general strike. Stan goes on, What will you do without money? Where will you get food if the grocery store is empty and the state fails to fill in the blanks? There was always going to be a pandemic. There was always going to be a financial crisis. There was always the ever more high-velocity unraveling of the Earth's capacity to self-repair, Any window left is now closing, and one black swan will beget another and another and another. What's on the other side of it all is certainly suffering in a world permanently impoverished by this demonic perversion called capitalist modernity. COVID-19 is not COVID-19. It's COVID-19 slash debt bubble slash climate change slash insane clown fascism. None of it can be separated. Ironically, the only valid responses to COVID-19 are non-market responses, anti-market responses. If we would but point out the big taboo, if we could but annul America's most precious right, denial, all could see now that market solutions are not only ineffective, market solutions are the wellspring of our predicament. It looks like doom, especially to those of us who have been spared in the metropolitan cores we comfortable suburbanites. For many around the world, this doom arrived three, four, five generations ago. The world for many millions is already what many developed nations, denizens, think of as post-apocalyptic. If those of us who have been spared thus far in America look but a little way, we have post-apocalyptic scenes developing around us right now in our failing cities and abandoned towns. We've looked away. We've denied, denied, denied. It's the American way. It's easier being a Christian now than a socialist, but even that is difficult in America where the majority who claim devotion to the vulnerable God have traded their fealty to the one crucified for a demonic counterfeit for racial capitalism, male conquest, and fortress America. For the rest of us, those fewer who refuse the idolatry of macho nationalism as well as the thin broth of the liberal churches adapting themselves to the pernicious myth of progress, at least we have our own apocalypse. Apocalypse here meaning revelation, the revelation of the empty tomb that former things have passed away, the fool's hope of suffering servants. There will be no grand, sweeping transformation of this broken world, one that was broken long before capitalism, though without capitalism's terrible contagions, medical and otherwise. What succeeds exterminism, here in this vale of tears, will be built out from within the interstices of a dying order. What will be accomplished will be accomplished with calloused hands, agile minds, practical speech, and hopefully with love. Love, hope, and charity decoupled from the ostrich optimisms of yesteryear. We have to turn away from our idols and turn again to our neighbor, not just the ones we like. This was what we missed again and again, and now we're living through a period when survival and the touch of others, that invaluable gift, are antithetical. Let that be a lesson to us. Here's another Medium article by Olivia Hardin. I don't have to vote blue no matter who. If you had asked me a week ago, I would have said, I am voting blue no matter who. That is no longer the case. I am an avid Bernie Sanders fan, but after the results of Super Tuesday and the primaries on March 10th, I am becoming increasingly nervous about his chances. I can't say for sure that Biden will win the nomination, and I have not entirely lost hope. But as things stand now, the math is not in Sanders' favor. I've started to prepare myself for the increasingly high possibility that Biden will be the Democratic nominee. My first election year was in 2016, and I was inspired by Sanders, who favored radical policies. Not really radical, but we'll let that go, Olivia. That I didn't even know were possible. I had long accepted my fate as someone on the cusp of being a millennial or Gen Zer and existing as a black, queer woman who was going to drown in student debt. The job market is a mess. Climate change will kill us all. Racism in America will continue to thrive. At 18 years old, I didn't know I could ask for much better, but Sanders has been fighting for America to be better his entire political career. Sanders believes in Medicare for All, a system that would dismantle the greed of private health insurance and pharmaceutical companies and provide affordable health care, including prescriptions. He recognizes that within the next seven to eight years, if we don't take extreme action, our planet will have irreversible damage and young and poor people will face the consequences. He supports legalizing marijuana federally, which benefits black and brown populations. He would make college and trade school free and erase student debt to help the middle and working classes. These policies work together to lift up everyone. So in 2016, when Sanders did not clinch the Democratic nomination, I was devastated. I learned very quickly that the system does not work for people like me. A progressive candidate was wiped out by a typical centrist. My consolation prize? Hillary Clinton was a woman, and as Donald Trump continued to spew an untruthful, hateful message, I knew how important it was that Trump did not become the leader of the free world, so I begrudgingly said, I guess I'm with her. My decision to settle for a moderate-slash-centrist ultimately did not matter. Clinton lost. She won the popular vote, but lost the electoral college, and it became abundantly clear to me that people wanted to see change The state of Wisconsin chose Sanders over Clinton by almost two to one during the primaries, but when the general election came around, Wisconsin flipped and became a red state for the first time since 1984. Trump used America's desire for change by making false promises and has since lied 16,241 times. I feel like I am watching a 2016 repeat happen right before my eyes. After doing extensive research on my own about Biden's policies throughout his more than 40 year tenure, I don't know if I feel comfortable voting for him in the 2020 election. Biden ran the committee who shamed black law professor Anita Hill for her sexual harassment claim. His record of endorsing tough on crime policies began in 1984. He's continually supported cutting Social Security benefits. He voted for the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996, defining marriage as between a man and a woman. He voted in favor of the Patriot Act and the Iraq War, and the Obama administration deported more illegal immigrants than ever before. In short, Biden has disenfranchised marginalized communities his entire political career. I understand where the vote blue no matter who mantra comes from because I supported it. There's this innate fear of another four years of a Trump presidency and the damage it may cause. For months, I've told myself that even if my standout candidate did not get the nomination, any candidate was better than this mess. But I'm uncertain if my radical ideas ever really fit within the Democratic Party. I don't know if I can vote for Biden alone on the theory of beating Trump. I'm undecided because I don't trust him. Picking the lesser of two evils is a cop-out because we lose every time. For too long, American politics have been about survival. We're so enthusiastic about reverting to normalcy, and normalcy sucks! When someone says they will abstain from voting for the presidency, others think you're crazy. They think you're privileged or don't understand the consequences of your actions, but I've never agreed. I can't blame my friends for their decisions because no one should have to compromise their morals for a system that has never fought for them. I'm not saying Sanders is the end-all, be-all. He's not a savior. But Sanders never said he'd save us. He said he'd lead us. Checking off on your ballot box should be a personal and sacred matter. Biden must compromise and take responsibility for his actions because we deserve better. A massive part of Sanders' campaign is, will you fight for someone you don't know? My question now is, will Biden and his supporters? And the answer, Olivia, is fuck no. Biden and his supporters don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about LGBTQ people or trans people or non-binary people. They don't give a fuck about American workers, whether they live in the Rust Belt or whether they live in urban poverty. Biden and his followers want to get back to brunch. The wine track voters have sold us all down the river and they don't even realize that the news they've been receiving from corporate news is way off base. But ignorance is no fucking excuse. Yes, Google is trying to ratchet down access to news that goes against the corporate narrative, Yes, baby boomers have trusted corporate news for a long time, and it's difficult to transition. Yes, it's tough to teach old dogs new tricks. But the world is in crisis mode now, and these old dogs are standing right in the way of progress. What would Bob Dylan say? Something like, if you don't get out of the road, you're going to get run over. Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand. That's about the size of it. Get on board the Burnier Buzz String. Come get on board the Burnier Buzz String. Once you hear that clickety clack, there ain't no time for turning back. Oh, get on board the Burnier Buzz The preceding episode can be viewed on the YouTube channel, Bernie or Bust Television.